Last week, the United States launched a drone strike that killed Iran's most powerful military commander, Qasem Soleimani. It appears the U.S. military has launched a missile strike in Iraq. Tonight, Iraqi state TV is reporting that among the people killed is Qasem Soleimani, a revered Iranian general and one of that country's most powerful military leaders. He's considered by the U.S. to be a terrorist. That strike came after several months of escalating tensions between Iran and the United States. You'd have to really go back to last spring and Trump's decision, not a big surprise, to pull out of the uh, Iran nuclear deal and to impose a series of escalating sanctions that really have hurt the Iranian economy. Iran responded to those sanctions. A series of things attacked shipping, sent missiles uh, via the Houthis into into Saudi Arabia. And most recently, when things really started to step up last month, their proxies, uh, Shiite militias in, in Iraq, began attacking U.S. installations in Iraq. In late December, hundreds of Iran-backed militiamen and their supporters barged through a barrier of the U.S. embassy in Baghdad and held two days of violent protests. Violent anti-American protesters are attacking the U.S. embassy in Baghdad this morning. Guards reportedly have responded with tear gas and stun grenades. Ultimately, this heated back and forth culminated in the U.S. killing of Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force, which is the main intelligence and fighting body of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard. The administration, in explaining itself, has kind of taken two tacks. One, that Soleimani is responsible for all the bad things that have happened over the years. Terrorism that it claims uh, Iran is responsible for, supporting these proxy groups in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Yemen and other places, and, and variously being a bad actor, and, and also going all the way back to the Iran war when uh, a lot of U.S. troops were killed with, with roadside bombs that the Americans said were built in Iran under his tutelage. Under my leadership, America's policy is unambiguous to terrorists who harm or intend to harm any American. We will find you. We will eliminate you. We will always protect our diplomats, service members, all Americans, and our allies. After the killing of Soleimani, Iran retaliated. On Tuesday night in Washington, that was Wednesday morning local time in Iraq, Iran fired a dozen ballistic missiles against two military bases in Iraq that house U.S. troops. In an address to the nation from the White House Wednesday morning, President Trump said no Americans nor Iraqis were killed or wounded in those missile attacks. He announced additional sanctions on Iran and said that Iran appears to be standing down. Tensions seem to have cooled for now. But the president's initial decision to strike and kill a powerful Iranian military commander raises questions about what constitutes acts of war and who can take such actions. Where do a president's powers begin and end when it comes to issuing a strike to kill? Can the executive decide without Congress how to retaliate and how much force to use against an adversary? And though things seem calmer at the moment, what might happen next? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. 
Karen DeYoung is a Pulitzer Prize-winning national security correspondent at The Washington Post. Karen laid out how the administration explained their unilateral decision to kill Soleimani. So they said he was a bad actor, but they also said that he was planning imminent attacks against the United States, specifically against hundreds of diplomats and soldiers that the administration said were in danger, and therefore they were justified in this attack under self-defense doctrine, that they were not required to inform Congress, they weren't required to inform anybody, they just acted to take out someone who was a direct and immediate threat to the United States. What the Iranians have now done, as they promised, is to retaliate for that killing, which happened last week. So I want to talk more deeply about the relationship between the president and Congress. We've discussed many times over the course of three years of making a show (laughs) called Can He Do That? The War Powers Act, that the president technically himself can't declare war, that he needs Congress. Can you start by explaining what the 1973 War Powers Act actually says? Well, the War Powers Act says that the president, even though the Constitution gives him the command of the armed forces and the direct responsibility for protecting American security, it actually gives Congress the authority to approve an actual war. And so the the question has always been, what's a war and what's just a military action? And who has the authority to approve that? Over the years, presidential power has expanded on a number of fronts, but particularly in this front. Congress has never actually approved a war under the War Powers Act, even though the United States has been involved in a lot of conflicts, because no president has said, this is a war. And no Congress has ever really pushed the president to say, this is a war. So in this case, then, does taking out a senior government official of a hostile country like Trump did with this Iranian's most powerful military commander, does that count as an act of war under the War Powers Act? Well, certainly a lot of Democrats believe it does. Uh, a lot of Republicans have said it doesn't. George Bush, Barack Obama, all conducted things that they called targeted killings Mm -hmm. that they said were lawful under various authorities, giving them the power to conduct counterterrorism operations to, again, respond to a so-called imminent threat. But nobody's really ever defined what an imminent threat was. The War Powers Act requires the president to go to Congress and ask for a declaration of war only if U.S. troops are directly inserted into hostilities and only if it lasts more than 60 days. And so presidents have basically taken the power to conduct these kinds of strikes and to conduct all kinds of military actions under the rubric of counterterrorism operations, direct security, responses in self-defense, to to immediate threats. And there really hasn't been very much of a challenge, either from Congress or from the courts. The courts don't like to get involved in these fights between the executive and the legislative branch and basically say, this is something you guys need to work out between yourselves. So to clarify that, can the executive commit an act of war or a targeted killing without Congress officially declaring war? Well, those are two different things, an act of war and a targeted killing. Is a targeted killing an act of war? Most administrations have said no up to now. And so they don't, they maintain they do not have to go to Congress. Well, Trump claimed that he sufficiently notified Congress of any possible U.S. military strike on Iran. 
by tweeting on Sunday. His tweet said, quote, these media posts will serve as notification to the United States Congress that should Iran strike any U.S. person or target, the United States will quickly and fully strike back. So setting aside the unusual nature of notifying Congress by tweet, I just want to ask you, does an executive have to notify Congress at all of a targeted killing? They don't have to, but mm-hmm. but tradition is that the president will notify at least what's called the Gang of Eight, which is the congressional leadership of both parties in both houses, the National Security Committee chairman and, and ranking members. Again, this is all, all things that have been developed in terms of practice. There's no rule that says this is what you have to do. And so what has happened is presidents have done what they feel was right or what they wanted to do, and Congress has had to decide whether to challenge them or not. There's been a lot of talk about challenges, but there have been no successful challenges up to this point. In this case, we've seen Democrats in the House call to invoke Congress's war powers. And in fact, they plan to vote on Thursday on whether to limit Trump's military authority in Iran. But given partisan divide in Washington, that likely won't go very far. So aside from partisanship, more broadly speaking, why is it so difficult for Congress to stop presidents from acting unilaterally when it comes to war and military aggression? Well, again, it's is it a war? Right. And what is a war? In in the law, there's no there's no real definition. Again, the War Powers uh, Resolution says if U.S. troops are involved in hostilities beyond sixty days, Congress has to approve it. There are a lot of ways around that. You saw, for example, in in Libya in, in 2011, where the United States led an air campaign against Muammar Gaddafi. That went on for weeks. It stopped in terms of U.S. leadership of that action within 60 days. And the Obama so administration, right, the Obama administration maintained, well, you know, we are within the parameters of the War Powers Resolution, and our troops were not involved in hostilities. First of all, they weren't on the ground. They were just flying over and dropping bombs and missiles. And before the end of 60 days, we pulled back uh, and let others take over that campaign. Therefore, we didn't have to go to Congress. Now, could Congress say, no, I'm sorry, we disagree with that? Yeah, they could, but they didn't. All right. Well, in departing from war specifically, can the U.S. government legally kill a foreign commander? The United States under executive action, under executive orders that, that date from the 1970s, most recently through to the Reagan administration, is prohibited from conducting assassinations. Here again, you go into what's the definition. Um, that executive order or or that part of an executive order from 1981 is one sentence. It says the United States should not be involved in assassinations. What's an assassination? The successive administrations have said, well, these are not assassinations. These are targeted killings. These are self-defense actions. Again, certainly Congress and, and other outside actors have the right and the ability to challenge that. And it has been challenged to some extent through the courts, but on a political level, Congress has never gotten to the point where they where they took action that would actually tie a president's hands, and the courts have not really ruled on any of this. So it's all a matter of your definition. You have a lot of people now, particularly some of the Democratic presidential candidates, saying this is an assassination. It's illegal. You have a lot of other people saying, nah, it's not an assassination. Well, it's mostly just blather. 
because no one is doing anything about it. And they really don't have, at this point, the power to do anything about it. Well, to that point, and you touched on this earlier, many in the administration have said that killing Soleimani was necessary due to an imminent threat. At this point, do we know what that threat was? No, we don't. We don't. The administration has said we can't reveal sources and methods. This is a uh, an intelligence operation. We can't tell you how we knew he was going to be there at that particular time uh, at the Baghdad airport. We can't tell you the details of these um, plans and these plots that, that the administration has said would have put at risk the lives of literally hundreds of U.S. diplomats and soldiers. Late on Tuesday, the the gang of eight, again, the, the congressional leadership, was briefed for the first time by the intelligence leaders who explained what the intelligence was. This morning, the National Security Cabinet is supposed to brief the entire Congress that won't be as fine-toothed as, as, as the intelligence briefing that was given to this smaller group yesterday evening. But it's closed doors and it's classified. And I'm quite sure that some members will come out and say, well, I didn't hear anything that justified this as an imminent threat that had to be addressed. And others will come out and say, yes, absolutely, the administration made its case. Can you clarify for me whether the U.S. considers Soleimani a terrorist or a foreign official? And does that distinction matter when it comes to the U.S. acting against him? Well, he's both. He's a designated terrorist by mm-hmm. the United States, by the United Nations, and and by uh, Europe. He also is a senior military official, was a senior military official, of another government. To some extent, that complicates the issue. But I think that, again, there is no mechanism for the administration to be found at fault other than kind of rhetorical criticism for doing this. I think a lot of people will say, um, look, yes, this guy was the senior person in charge of actions that that Iranian proxies and Iranian operatives have conducted over the years. Does getting rid of him mean that those actions will stop? Probably not. Other people will step in and do that. If you, you know, you could follow the logic and say any country who does something we don't like, if we label it terrorism, the head of that country or a senior official of that country is ultimately responsible for that act. Ergo, that person can be held responsible in the way that Soleimani was held responsible. Again, I I just have to go back to the fact that the law is so vague on this, and there really has not been any challenge to it that's been effective, and there probably won't be this time. So fundamentally, the president has a lot of unilateral power when it comes to acts like this. The president has his power under the Constitution, Article 2 of the Constitution, which says that he's responsible for the security of the nation. And he also has some statutory authority under various authorizations that have been passed, certainly since the 9-11 attacks, one which deals specifically with terrorism and one which which authorized the United States to go in and invade Iraq in 2003. Many people argue that neither of those had anything to do with, with Iran. But again, not only the Trump administration, but the Obama administration and the Bush administration have used those authorizations to conduct counterterrorism operations in ways that many have questioned and have said go far beyond what what the intention 
uh, of the authorities were, but there has never been an effective challenge either in Congress or in the courts. When do escalations, these attacks back and forth, just amount to war? I guess when the U.S. government, the president and or the Congress says it's a war. Not necessarily in this case, since at least for now, it seems like things are de-escalating. But generally speaking, how do congressional declarations of war change things in terms of resources or messaging? You know, there was no declaration of war for Korea. There was no declaration of war for Vietnam. There has been no declaration of war through the whole so-called war on terrorism. And so I don't think it would change anything, really. I want to talk then about another response we've seen since the killing of Soleimani. On Sunday, Iraq's parliament voted to expel American troops from the country. And Trump responded by saying that if American troops are forced out of Iraq, the U.S. will issue Iraq sanctions. He said sanctions like we've never seen before. This seems like it would be a very unusual move, given that Iraq is an ally. Would it be unusual to impose sanctions on them? I think that would be very, very difficult. It is a bit of a conundrum. Part of the rationale for the U.S. presence in Iraq is to preserve Iraqi sovereignty. Iraq is a sovereign country. There is no status of forces agreement. There is no official authorization for the United States to be in Iraq. There was an invitation by the Iraqi government in 2014 for the United States and other countries in NATO to send troops to help stop the threat from the Islamic State. Arguably, that threat is so diminished now that that there's no reason for those troops to be there. And this is what many in Iraq would, would argue. I think there are many people in Iraq that that would like the Americans to stay. That does not include many in the Iraqi government, which is dominated by Shiites, many of whom are sympathetic to Iran. So I think that there may be some alteration, some kind of fig leaf that that allows a certain quantity of American troops to remain under certain alteration of the conditions so that give the Iraqis at least a fig leaf of more say over what the Americans do there. But the Iraqis are very scared that they they have just become the sort of venue for this fight between Iran and the United States. And they don't want that. They would like all of this to go away. Lastly, let's talk about the political implications for Trump here. What what do we know based on reporting about how Trump calculated the ramifications of killing Soleimani? I think that after you'll, you'll recall that late last year, after there were several attacks in this kind of buildup, this tit for tat between Iran and the United States, uh, Trump had had authorized and then pulled back a U.S. Uh, strike against Iran. And there was a lot of chatter at the time that Trump, despite his bellicosity, really didn't want to have a conflict with with uh, Iran. And the Iranians themselves, I think, interpreted it as a kind of weakness. And Trump was not happy with that. His attention is focused on his reelection campaign. He has two things going for him as far as he's concerned, strong economy and a strong military posture. The opportunity presented itself, particularly after in all of this back and forth following the attacks by Shiite militias in Iraq, that there were demonstrations and, and an attack by a mob against the U.S. embassy the weekend preceding the Soleimani attack. 
Trump does not want to have another Benghazi on his hands. He wants to stand up, as he often does, and say, I've made America stronger than ever. I have given our military more money. I've made it into the strongest force ever in history. And as he looks ahead to his presidential reelection campaign, these are the things that he wants to be able to emphasize. Okay, so then given what we heard Wednesday in Trump's public address when he suggested that Iran appears to be backing down and he announced additional Iran sanctions, what happens next between the U.S. and Iran? Well, that's the big question. I think we don't know. Is Iran finished with its revenge, as it calls it? Is the United States going to respond? We just don't know yet. All right, Karen, well, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? As always, if you liked it, share it, send it to your friends and family, leave us a review, and keep listening wherever you listen to podcasts. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the compassionate Carol Alderman, with production help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. Hi, I'm Lillian Cunningham, a journalist with The Washington Post and the creator of Presidential, a 44-episode podcast journey through American presidential history. If one of your resolutions this year is to become a more engaged citizen, to brush up on your understanding of the nation's politics, then I've got a suggestion. Take the Presidential Challenge in 2020. Each of the 44 podcast episodes of Presidential tells the story of how a former president climbed his way to the White House, what he did there, and what's different about the country today because of his time in office. If you start now and you listen to one episode on a different U.S. president per week, you'll make it through the entire history of the presidency by Election Day. The episodes feature interviews with famous presidential biographers. When I was writing my biography of Clinton, I kept saying, well, you've studied his whole life. What is it? Do you like him or not? Is he good or bad? And with award-winning journalists. The day he resigned, he called all of his aides and friends and family to the West Wing of the White House just before he left on the helicopter. You can find all 44 episodes of the Presidential Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash presidential or on any of your other favorite podcast platforms.